Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Story guys, I'm Brennan Store. I'm Ian Gibbs, and this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun is set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. It's Tuesday, March 7th. This is episode four, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. How you doing, Ian? I'm doing really well, actually. I am uh, exceptionally excited to be using this fancy new equipment you've set up. It is very fancy, it is so fancy. And not not nice sweatpants fancy like I'm used to. No, no, quality, classy, all the way fancy. I love it. And the amount of time it takes to get the show out the door keeps getting shorter and our audience keeps getting larger. So Even I'm better. I'm doing pretty well too. Awesome. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you, you have a little bit of listener feedback for us? I do. I've heard from a few people this week actually. Um, Great. People are really enjoying the show, which is good. Well, um, of course, because we're geniuses of the highest order. We are, and and fundamentally underrated. But um, one person did say one thing, and, and she didn't quite know how to phrase it. And what she had said was, well... Brendan's voice makes me spontaneously <laughs> orgasm. <laughs> no. No. Oh. Well, it was about your voice, though. Um, Go on. She said that I sounded more natural. And I pressed her on this and said, well, how do you mean? And she goes, well, you know, Brennan sounds good, but he he just sounds like he's using a radio voice. (laughs) And I laughed and said, oh, I'm so sorry. No, that's really how he talks. Yeah, no, that's, that's very, very true. I, uh, I'm sorry to say I sound like this almost all the time. In high school, I discovered the music of Barry White and I I thought that's, that's how I want to sound. (laughs) Now, of course I never got that far, but it was far enough and, and I mean, I'm told it works on air, but it, it can be a real pain when you're out shopping for trousers. <laughs> of course. All the clerks you ask for help, they start looking around like they think they're on a sad reality-based game show. <laughs> well, if you're there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means. So uh, to that listener, I shall quote the late, great Leonard Cohen and say, I was born like this. I had no choice. I was born with the gift of a golden voice. Oh my God, you're so full of it. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Um, the other feedback we had was, uh, and from more than one person, they uh, again said they enjoy the show, but what they've learned the hard way is not to listen at bedtime or before bedtime, that this is more of a 
daytime kind of show. Oh, uh, they're getting all hot and bothered by my voice? <laughs> no, not in the least. Here, here's more, this one's for you. More... He plunged his purple-headed <laughs> stop warrior. It, just stop it. <laughs> it's more of a, uh, they get freaked out. Oh, I understand. Well, if I can't tell you a naughty story, let's tell a scary one. On this episode, we're going to be talking about the legend of the Wendigo, Teddy Roosevelt, and eventually how it all may have cost one dude his head. Coming up to the break. silence fell about the little camp, planted there so audaciously in the jaws of the wilderness. The lake gleamed like a sheet of black ice beneath the stars. The cold air pricked in the drafts of night that poured their silent tide from the depths of the forest, with messages from distant ridges and from lakes just beginning to freeze, there lay already the faint, bleak odors of coming winter. White men with their dull scent might never have divined them. The fragrance of the wood fire would have concealed from them these almost electrical hints of moss and bark and hardening swamp a hundred miles away. Even Hank and DeFago, subtly in league with the soul of the woods as they were, would probably have spread their delicate nostrils in vain. As they slept, the change of wind he had divined stirred gently the reflection of the stars within the lake. Rising among the far ridges of the country beyond Fifty Island Water, it passed over the sleeping camp with a faint and sighing murmur through the tops of the big trees that was almost too delicate to be audible. With it, down the desert paths of night, there passed a curious thin odor, strangely disquieting, an odor of something that seemed unfamiliar, utterly unknown. The French-Canadian and the man of Indian blood each stirred uneasily in his sleep just about this time, though neither of them woke. Then the ghost of that unforgettably strange odor passed away and was lost among the leagues of tenantless forest beyond. Even though it's not the first appearance of the Wendigo in popular culture, Algernon Blackwood's 1910 novella The Wendigo remains one of the best-known stories about the wild spirit we'll be talking about today. Uh, it's also itself wildly racist. In the original story, I mean, they, they refer to wild Indian blood and they, they drop the N-word literally like it's the base at a Skrillex show. That's not great. It is bad. <laughs> so um, the Wendigo, of course, we're going to be talking about today. It's, it's also known as the Wendigo or the Wetiko. It's a creature born of, of North American legend, a monster of sorts that's believed to have originated with the Algonquin people of Northern Alberta. Its first recorded appearance is in the 1722 travel diary of Backville de la Pothery, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that because it's French. <laughs> it's okay, he won't mind. <laughs> Are you kidding? He's French. Even from beyond the grave, he's offended. In 1982, researcher John Colombo assembled a collection of both modern and ancient accounts of encounters with the creature, and he describes it thusly. Wendigo has been described as a phantom of hunger which stalks the forests of the north in search of lone Indians, half-breeds, or white men to consume. It may take the form of a cannibalistic Indian who breathes flames, or it may assume the guise of a supernatural spirit with a heart of ice that flies through the night skies in search of a victim to satisfy its cravings for human flesh. Like the vampire, it feasts on flesh and blood. Like the werewolf, its shape changes at will. The legends of northern Alberta's Cree and Métis people describe the Wendigo as an owl-eyed monster with large, clawed hands, matted hair, a naked, emaciated body, and a heart made of solid ice. Pretty sure I dated the Wendigo when I was in high school. <laughs> uh, the owl appearance is interesting because that's found elsewhere in North American lore. Uh, the Seminole legends of the Stikini. Right. Uh, and it's, the Stikini is an evil witch, and I love this. 
Uh, at night, they apparently vomit out their organs and transform into an owl monster who roams the night looking for hearts to eat. You throw in some hair product and you've got yourself a mid-40s, people are say. <laughs> That's a, it sure is a, a mythical cougar-like creature would be a nice <laughs> sum up of that. Well, the great thing is that works either for, for a man or a woman because you either got, uh, yeah, you either got a cougar or you've got a middle-aged guy named Dell with a bunch of uh, chest hair. And an and, earring. Oh, yeah. One, yeah. Yeah, one earring one and earring. A, and a V-neck T-shirt. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely perfect. He wants to buy you a Smirnoff ice. <laughs> the Owl Monster thing actually reminds me of an English horror film I saw a few years back at the Lovecraft Festival in Portland. The movie was called Lord of Tears or the Owl Man. Mm. It was usual, you know, young man inherits his rich old uncle's castle only to find out it comes at a terrible price thing. <laughs> Uh, but this time it was the terrible price was an owl monster instead of a sexy ghost or a painting whose eyes follow you. <laughs> it wasn't a great movie, but there was a couple moments of this owl thing stalking a guy through a Scottish manor house that kind of stuck with you. But isn't that the kind of thing you could bring in an exterminator for? I mean, the ghost <laughs> I get or, you know, but really, come on, it's an owl monster. Let's hunt it down and have it be gone. Yeah, is this uh, pest control? Yeah. Yeah, we got the uh, we got the owl monster again. <laughs> again, I'll put out the traps. You know, they put a bunch of peanut butter in the owl monster. <laughs> come, come for your so much peanut butter. Mm. Oh, no, never mind, Chunky. <laughs> now that the owl monster, the Chunky peanut butter is amazing. Oh, okay. There you go. You're not a fan? Uh, it gets stuck in my teeth. I don't you're so white. I'm sorry. I am very, very white. <sighs> Getting back to the Wendigo, Canadian writer Basil Johnston, a member of Ontario's Ojibwe people and survivor of the vast horror that was Canada's Indian residential schools, oh, yeah. uh, once described the Wendigo as gaunt to the point of emaciation, its desiccated skin pulled tautly over its bones, with its bones pushing out against its skin, its complexion the ash gray of death, and its eyes pushed back deep into their sockets. The Wendigo looked like a gaunt skeleton. There's a lot of gaunt in here. I was going to say, it sounds like Fashion Week in New York, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that too. I'm just thinking someone should have bought this guy a thesaurus. Well, gaunt is a good word. I guess. Gaunt skeleton recently disinterred from the grave. What lips it had were tattered and bloody. Unclean and suffering from separations of the flesh. Mm. I just I can't read the word separations without giving that little... Arr, arr, separation. Separations. Oh, okay, that's... Ooh. <laughs> Oh, I feel a little nauseous. <laughs> Separations of the flesh, the Wendigo gave off a strange and eerie odor of decay and decomposition, of death and corruption. Pretty sure I dated her too. <laughs> <laughs> For a Christian guy, you were sure a man whore. <laughs> well, one date, and if they reeked of death and corruption, then we didn't go on a second date. It wasn't... That seems like a pretty good criteria yeah, for uh, whether I, or not to go for a second date. I think so. <clears throat> Moving on. Uh, despite all these florid descriptions, actual face-to-face -face encounters with Wendigo are pretty thin on the ground. I did a lot of looking around, and, and there weren't a lot of actual, you know, holy shit, it's a giant beast sort of encounters. Well, and to be fair, though, if the Wendigo is eating people, it's hard to find someone <laughs> surviving to report it. That's, that's right? I mean, point. I kind of I get that. I mean, what are you going to do? The legend of the Wendigo suffers from his success rate. <laughs> He needs a publicist. He is what does. He needs. he needs a team of publicists. The poor guy. I wonder if I can piss off his publicist the way I pissed off yours. <laughs> I doubt it. That is more on an epic scale. That one's going on my resume. <laughs> Ian's book comes is going to press in about a week, so we're going to wait until after it goes to press to talk more about that. <laughs> because you're going to be nice, right? I am going to be so nice it makes your teeth hurt. Oh, good. So, yeah, uh, again, the, most of the, the actual Wendigo sighting stuff I, I found were pretty thin on the ground. but And most of them honestly sounded like Sasquatch encounters right. or, you know, Italian guys who got lost <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> that never happens because they don't leave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too many Jaeger bombs. He got lost on the way back from the bar, <laughs> going back to his mom's house. 
where he'd make wake her up at two in the morning so she'd make him pasta. Make him pasta with some Hey ma, hey ma, wake up, wake up. Okay, Del. I'm hungry. I'm making you pasta. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a woman's fault you're not married yet. The women just don't understand your your appeal. Oh, okay, speaking of appearance, come back, come back. Oh, sorry, come sorry, back. yeah. <laughs> The most famous encounter I'm aware of was reported by old bully pulpit himself, Teddy Roosevelt. And even that may be a Sasquatch encounter running under another name. Do you, do you know much about Teddy Roosevelt? I've seen a few documentaries on him. He was he was a pretty interesting guy. He was, but I, I read uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's The Bully Pulpit, the one she did after Team of Rivals about Lincoln. Right. And he really comes across as kind of a try-hard pain in the ass. Well, the whole family. I mean, I, I've seen it. The whole Roosevelt family were that um, guy in his wheelchair were, <laughs> thinks he's so tough. <laughs> they were uh, pretty hardcore people. They expected incredibly high things from themselves, and he was certainly no exception. So no, no, no. But th- there's this one particular thing in the book that really kind of struck me as annoying, and it, it said that he he would take any spare moment he could to read. Which I mean, I admire. I like reading. Yeah, but. There is this moment where they describe you'd be led into his office and he would be holding, reading a book. And while he would stop to, to say hello to you. And then in the, I don't know, eight <laughs> seconds it would take you to cross the floor towards him, he would read a little more. As if to say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm utilizing this eight seconds. Well, but, you know, you've never been in that place where you just quite haven't gotten to the end of a chapter. No, that's just... no, that's horseshit. <laughs> he, he is just trying to impress whoever this is. By He's, being like, oh, look, I'm literate. I, I have to use this extra eight se-. This reminds me of a story I heard about a guy I met in Chicago years ago. Right. And he was an okay guy. His girlfriend was cute. Too cute, as it turns out, because she ended up fooling around with another guy. Oh, no. But that was a whole other thing. Man, I missed that opportunity. Anyways. <laughs> You and the Sasquatch. <laughs> Moving on. But yeah, so anyways, he, he worked for an engineering firm, but he himself was not an engineer. Right. They called him a pretengineer. <laughs> and he sort of had, because he was just a high school graduate. And I sympathize because I, I, that's all I have is high school. Right. That's too bad. But <laughs> says the guy who got, what, they give your master's degree to one person who's on the cusp of death every year <laughs> just to pad out the numbers. Hey, whatever works. You got the affirmative action master's degree. Bees <laughs> get degrees. So anyways, this guy's pretengineer, his friend was telling me about this. And I guess- he would go to visit this guy right? and the guy would buzz him up to his apartment. But in the time it took the person to get from the ground floor up to his apartment, when they walked in, they would find him reading, sitting in an easy chair, reading Proust <laughs> with a bottle, with a glass of scotch right next to him. And he would look up from the Proust as if to say, oh, oh hello. Oh, I, I didn't know you were arriving so soon. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you. So not just a pretengineer, he was also a pretentious pretengineer. <laughs> so t- That's annoying. When, when, I, when I hear Teddy Roosevelt, when I read about him, that, he kind of strikes me as a pretentious pretengineer. But going back to the story that, that Roosevelt uh, that Roosevelt published. And an interesting thing about Roosevelt, he did a lot of writing. Yeah. And a lot of traveling, when it went, especially when he was a younger man. He was the father of the national park system, really. This particular story is called The Wendigo, and it was written as part of Roosevelt's 1892 collection of true nature stories called The Wilderness Hunter. Right. Ian's going to tell us that story now. The story was told to Roosevelt by a grizzled, weather-beaten old hunter named Bauman. And Bauman was a German who had lived pretty much his whole life on the frontier. He still shuddered when he told this story. It, it really did affect him. This event occurred when Bauman was still a young man. He was young and stupid, and he and a friend were trapping in the Bitterroot Mountains of Montana near the Wisdom River. The pair weren't having much luck, so they decided to explore a remote pass where a stream was said to be home to many beaver. Typical mountain men, I guess, always hunt for beavers. Shut up. <laughs> Just tell the story and leave the dirty jokes to me. What? 
the pelts were valuable. What do you mean? The pass, um, the pass had a pretty bad reputation among the locals, as the year before a lone hunter had come to a bad end while searching the region. Mining prospectors who'd passed his camp one night went to pass again the following morning and found the hunter brutally murdered, as if by some beast. He was also partially eaten, which at that point would have me going, I think I'll back go back to the hotel now. Oh, yeah. No, I would have taken up a career as a banker following th- that find. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. once I was hitchhiking, I found half a deer. Oh, and half a deer. Half a deer. That's upsetting. I was deeply concerned about becoming half a me. <laughs> yeah, no, I wouldn't be hanging around. But Bauman and his partner, as uh, they aforementioned being young and dumb, didn't think much of the story and set out for the pass eventually leaving their ponies behind when the going became too difficult to be to proceed on horseback. The men continued through the dense forest on foot for four more hours until they finally found some signs of wild game. The glade in which they decided to pitch camp was not very wide, the tall, close-set pines and firs rising around it like a wall. On one side was a little stream, beyond which rose the steep mountain slopes covered with the unbroken growth of the evergreen forest. They built lean-tos made of brush, left their packs, and since there were at least a couple of hours of daylight remaining, set off up the creek. The country ahead was just as dense and hard to traverse as what lay behind them, and they returned to camp just as dark was falling. Upon their return, they were a little shocked to discover that their lean-tos had been destroyed, and the contents of their packs flung every which way, presumably by a bear. They rebuilt the lean-tos, and Bauman set about making dinner in the dark, while his companion examined the tracks left behind by what they both believed to be a bear. He took a brand from the fire and used it to light his work, following the tracks a short distance up a game trail. When his brand burned itself out, he fetched another and continued examining the prints very closely. Afterwards, he stood next to the campfire, staring off into the blackness of the woods, and suddenly he spoke. Bauman, that bear has been walking on two legs. Nope. (laughs) I'm out of here. (laughs) That would be another sign for me as well. That noise. Well, and Bauman laughed, so he's either braver than us or dumber than us. We're going with dumber. We're going with dumber. Uh, He, of course, laughed, but his friend was completely serious. The two went back and examined the tracks together by torchlight. Sure enough, the spacing of these prints suggested that they'd been created by something walking on two feet or paws. Concerned about bandits, the pair discussed whether or not the tracks could have been made by men, decided it was impossible, and curled up beneath their lean-to to sleep. You know, if there's some wild creature stalking around the woods, I would have to say that sleep would be very low on my priority list. Well, let's examine that logic. So we're we're in the, the deep, dark forest. Middle of the forest. It's clearly not a man whatever left these tracks. It must be some kind of horrible mountain beast. Right. It's bedtime. Yeah. <laughs> I'm scared. How about you? Yeah, let's go to sleep. I'm scared now. Yeah. <laughs> At midnight. Bauman was awakened by some noise. He sat up in his blankets, and as he did so, his nostrils were struck by a strong, wild beast odor. Oh, that's like when we're in this room together right after dinner, huh? If you listen closely, you can hear the sound of my eyes rolling. Uh, he caught the loom of a great body in the darkness at the mouth of the lean-to. He grabbed his rifle. He fired at the vague, threatening shadow, but must have missed. For immediately afterwards, he heard the smashing of the underwood as the thing, whatever it was, turned and rushed off into the impenetrable blackness of the forest in the night. After this, the two men slept little, (laughs) you think, sitting up by the rekindled fire, but they heard nothing more. In the morning, they started out to look at their traps that they had set the previous evening and to put out new ones. By an unspoken agreement, they kept together that whole day and returned to camp towards evening. 
They again found their camp in disarray, their lean-to smashed. All around were the same footprints as the night before. This time, the footprints led away along the river, where they left a definite imprint in the soft ground. They were unmistakably animal, and unmistakably made by that animal walking on two legs. I repeat, no. <laughs> I, time to go. <laughs> time to go. <laughs> Bauman and his partner stayed awake through the night, feeding the fire and sleeping in shifts. At midnight, the creature came, keeping watch on them from the hillside across the brook from their camp. They couldn't see it, but they could hear branches crackle underneath its feet, and several times it uttered a harsh, sinister sound, a grating, long-drawn moan. It didn't come any closer, possibly frightened by the fire. In the morning, the two trappers, as brave as they were, decided that they'd had quite enough and set about gathering their traps in preparation for leaving. Immediately after camp, they both felt as though they were being followed, and several times while following the trap line, they heard branches snap and leaves rustling nearby. On their way back to the camp in the bright sunlight, the men started to feel silly for being afraid. After all, they'd survived years in the wilderness, fending off all manner of natural and man-made danger. Nothing had ever happened before, why should something get the best of them now? Bauman volunteered to collect the three remaining beaver traps from a nearby pond, while his friend went back to camp to pack up. Upon arriving in the wide ravine where the pond was located, Bauman found that three beavers were trapped, and it took him several hours to prepare and secure the beavers for travel, so that the sun was low in the sky by the time he set out for camp. This was a problem, as the two had intended to be out of this particular pass before nightfall, and they had a four-hour journey just to get to the horses. I don't even like carrying my luggage from the uh, arrivals part of, of the airport to where the cab is. Let alone your camping gear, your gun, and several beavers. And four hours each way. Ugh. The forest was unnaturally quiet as he approached camp. His feet made no sound on the pine needles, and the slanting sun rays striking through among the straight trunks made a gray twilight in which objects at a distance glimmer indistinctly. Nothing broke the stillness of the late afternoon. No noise, no sound, no movement, nothing. Bauman shouted for his friend, but got no reply. The fire had gone out. All that remained was a thin blue curl of smoke rising up into the darkening sky. Near the fire pit, their packs had been neatly wrapped and arranged and ready for travel. Bauman again called out for his friend, but still he got no reply. Stepping forward, he called out one final time, and then he saw the body of his friend. He rushed towards it, and he found that his friend was still warm, but his neck was broken with four enormous fang marks in the throat. All around the body were the deep tracks of the monster from the woods. Bauman ran, leaving behind everything but his rifle, and when he finally returned to the hobbled ponies, he mounted and rode as fast and as far as he could through the night and into the morning, and he never approached that ravine again. That's a great story. And, uh, I mean, it's hard to believe, but I know there was a 2014 article on Week and Weird that presented evidence uh, confirming at least part of it. According to their research, there was indeed a German immigrant named Carl Baumann who relocated to Montana in 1860 and died in 1912, only 50 miles from the mountain range where Roosevelt's Baumann lost his friend. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's funny though, because it says in, in Roosevelt's story that he never approached the area again. Right. But then to die 50 miles from it, you'd think, well, that's that's near. But then I guess at the time- That wasn't near at all, was ex- it? Yeah. That, that's it. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it, now in an era where I- once upon a time would drive an hour to get to the nearest Tim Hortons. Right. <laughs> Thus exemplifying our real history and reputation as mountain men. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm very rugged. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> double, double, please. Yeah. Don't make me get out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> That's precious calories. I could be burning on other things. Exactly. Like thinking. 
staring into the middle distance. <laughs> Coming up next, we're going to talk about the more commonly reported manifestations of Wendigo as a corrupting spirit who hungers for flesh. <laughs> so like you on wing night. Like me on wing night. <laughs> we'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. You knew I was coming for you, little one, when the kettle jumped into the fire. Towels flapped on the hooks and the dog crept off groaning to the deepest part of the woods. In the hackles of dry brush, a thin laughter started up. Mother scolded the food warm and smooth in the pot and called you to eat. But I spoke in the cold trees. New one, I have come for you. Child, hide and lie still. The sumac pushed sour red cones through the air. Copper burned in the raw wood. You saw me dragged toward you. Oh, touch me, I murmured, and licked the soles of your feet. You dug your hands into my pale, melting fur. I stole you off a huge thing in my bristling armor. 
Steam rolled from my wintry arms, each leaf shivered from the bushes we passed, until they stood naked, spread like the clean spines of fish. Then your warm hands hummed over and shoveled themselves full of the ice and the snow. I would darken and spill all night running, until at last morning broke the cold earth, and I carried you home, a river shaking in the sun. Louis Erdrich's poem, Wendigo, is a beautiful counterpoint to what's often a pretty bloody, grotesque legend. Uh, before the break, we talked about Wendigo's terrifying beast stalking the woods, and, and that was bad enough. But now we're going to talk about Wendigo as cannibal spirit possession, which is a lot worse because it's a lot more realistic. Yeah, it's realistic and it's it's a lot more terrifying because it's not like there's something you can fight against. Uh, the Algonquin believed that the spirit of Wendigo could possess men and women, driving them to kill and eat flesh. No doubt this was a cautionary tale to warn people off cannibalism, which would have seemed like an option in the Harsh Winters. Uh, realistically, there's no food. What are you going to do? It, it was also believed that human beings could have the power uh, of the person whose flesh you consumed. Uh, and so when you ate them, you actually achieved their level of, of power. So what you're saying is that this was they were living the plot of Highlander. <laughs> Yeah, that that is exactly it. I thought so. Uh, what's interesting is I've heard that same kind of thing from tribal cultures in South America, the ones who were cannibals. Oh, okay. That they would have battles and they would eat the dead because they believed that if they did that, they would gain their power. They would gain their skill. And then they all got Kuru and died. <laughs> well, there's that. So don't eat your friends, people. There's a good public service announcement. Friends don't let friends eat friends. <laughs> Brought to you by the Ghost Story Guys. <laughs> it was also believed that the power brought with it, however, the danger of Wendigo possession. And those who were said to have gone Wendigo would suffer physically as well as psychological symptoms. There was actually an episode of Highlander kind of like that. Oh, stop it. Sorry. Their uh, mouths and lips would swell. Often they would convulse. They would make animal sounds. Uh, a big one was complaining of coldness, uh, which <laughs> you would think in northern Canada, <laughs> complaining of being cold would not be that unusual. But well, apparently... One would think. Apparently, that's a big sign you're about to become a Wendigo. You know, I, I had a cold shower this morning. <laughs> uh, completely cold shower. I read this thing. It's supposed to be good for you. So uh -huh. I, I tried it. And I, I don't know, man. I, I got to say, I mean, after, after standing in cold water for the better part of five minutes... I would have killed and eaten someone. So <laughs> well, it might have just been a function of the weather. I, I, I spent the day in a very cold office building because the, the heat was out in our office building. But at no time, I can honestly say with a clear heart and a clear conscience, did I look at my coworkers and think, hmm, that would be good fried up. So I'm not sure how far we can go with the, I'm cold. Oh, no, I'm a Wendigo. I'm, I'm just going to sit here in polite silence and let you <laughs> finish telling anyway, the story. Anyway, becoming a Wendigo was said to make the heart of those afflicted turn to ice, and they would often complain about the cold. One treatment for this was to force the affected person to drink hot, sometimes even boiling fat or tallow to melt their heart of ice. Now, you, you point that out the next time someone bitches about modern medicine. <laughs> You know, all the chemicals and stuff. Yeah, well, 150 years ago, we if were, were boiling, cold, we're going to pour boiling shit down your throat. Boiling fat down your throat. I cannot imagine being deep fried from the inside. I mean, it's going to solve the problem about whether or not this person will turn into a Wendigo. Well, it's going to solve all their problems this on a permanent basis. Not turning into anything else other than, well, possibly Wendigo food. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, Weird. worm food. Yeah, maybe it was the people boiling the fat who were the Wendigos. Anybody ever bring that up? No, I don't think so. I think you've cracked the case. I have cracked Ian. the case. Um, 
These people would often beg for death, but not everyone who, quote, went Wendigo, unquote, had eaten human flesh first. According to Canadian researcher Nathan Carlson, who's one of the world's leading authorities on the Wendigo phenomena, the Algonquin cosmology held that dream events were just as powerful, if not more so, than those taking place in the real world. I mean, I, I gotta say, if not for uh, dream events... My high school would have been a long desert I know exactly where you're going with that, and you're a pig. Some of those who became affected by the spirit came to that affliction through dreams in which they were tricked into eating human flesh. That was one of the dreams I had. Oh. In 1897, a woman from Lesser Slave Lake, Alberta, I've been there, I would have eaten a person too if I'd been stuck in Lesser Slave Lake, Alberta, <laughs> uh, had a dream in which her dead brother brought her human flesh in a bowl made of ice and convinced her to eat it. When she awoke... Her mother and sister felt unwell. The neighbors drummed and prayed over the woman, trying to fend off the Wittico, the Wendigo, and they went so far even to sacrifice two dogs. Maybe it was just an excuse to eat the dogs. Well, maybe. Uh, a trader with the Hudson's Bay Company had the woman sent to a different settlement before her family killed her. This had already happened in a different case in Trout Lake, Alberta, not far away. Oh, man. The other example of Wendigo possession we're going to talk about today is both topical and hugely controversial, at least here in Canada. Uh, that is, of course, the case of Vince Lee. Now, on the night of July 30th, 2008, a Greyhound bus was rolling through the dark about 12 miles outside the Manitoba town of Portage La Prairie. Tim McLean was sleeping. The 22-year-old carnival worker was on his way home from the small city of Edmonton, Alberta, to visit his family in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He had no idea that the man sat next to him as Vince Lee, a 40-year-old part-time newspaper deliveryman who grew up in northeastern China. He had no idea that Vince Lee heard voices, that those voices told him he's the next coming of Jesus Christ and that he is in great danger from space aliens who wish to stop him. That because of those warnings, Vince Lee had started carrying a hunting knife in his jacket. Tim McLean had no idea those voices were telling Lee that the young man next to him is one of those aliens. Tim McLean has no idea that Vince Lee is about to bury that hunting knife in his chest. Garnet Caton was sitting one row ahead of the pair and turned around immediately after hearing what he called a blood-curdling scream. He sees Lee repeatedly stabbing McLean. The other passengers soon see for themselves and panic. Lee pulled McLean's body from his seat into the aisle and continued stabbing him over and over. With Lee focused on McLean, Caton herded the other passengers off the bus and a passing long-haul truck driver stops to see what's happening and decides, with Caton and the driver, to try and subdue Lee. The three cautiously board the bus, armed with a tire iron. They catch Lee in the middle of cutting off Tim McLean's head. Covered in blood, uh, the manic man, he sees the men come aboard the bus and rushes towards him, slashing. The men fled, barricading the door so Lee couldn't follow. At that point, Lee attempted to drive away, but before he could, the bus driver disabled the engine using a special external cutoff switch. After that, Lee stood at the blocked door, staring at the three men, carrying Tim McLean's severed head. He dropped the head at the door and walked to the back of the bus. After authorities arrived, there was a four-hour standoff in which baffled police tried to make contact with Lee, who they can see carving off parts of Tim McLean's body and eating them. At his first court appearance, Vincent Lee said only three words, Please kill me. It'll come as no surprise to you that Vince Lee was diagnosed as schizophrenic and as a result ruled not criminally responsible for his actions. Placed in a mental hospital, he, Lee was, has been slowly working his way back to wellness. In 2010, he was allowed escorted walks around the hospital grounds and in 2012, he was allowed to make escorted visits out of the facility into neighboring towns. And now that his schizophrenia is controlled, uh, Lee is being granted further freedoms and uh, he's aware of and horrified by what he's done. In a 2012 interview, he given before he was allowed those supervised visits into nearby communities, uh, Lee said, I should have been killed at that time, I still believe that, but I'm thankful that the RCMP didn't. The ties to Wendigo phenomenon are obvious, the mania, the voices, the eating of flesh, but of course we have a diagnosis in this particular case. However, there, there is one more thread tying this to the legend. 
Ten days prior to the killing, Lee was at work delivering newspapers. One of those newspapers, the Edmonton Sun, had a two-page feature on Wendigo researcher Nathan Carlson, who we talked about earlier. And it just makes me wonder, did he read the paper? Did Lee, was he inspired to, to do what he did? Or is it just a great cosmic coincidence that Wendigo happened to settle down in his brain? Yeah, no, I get that. I, I think the bigger question, for me anyway, is um, why did nobody stop him? I mean, he had a lot of time to do what he did, and nobody did anything to stop him on the bus. Uh, quite frankly, if if I see someone being stabbed on the bus, I'm getting off the bus. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I'm I'm not going to to swoop in and try and save him because that man has a knife plunged into his thorax. Well, and there's really nothing I can do for him other true. than say, "Well, that sucks." Yeah, or dive aside him, which I'm not going to do. Well, and yeah, I mean that's the bigger thing. If people had intervened, there may have been more people who'd been murdered, right? No, that, that's exactly it. And, and and I'm gonna put it out there that the stout and stern of pure of heart do not <laughs> ride the, the greyhound. <laughs> Heroes don't ride the bus. I I actually get what you're saying with that. I uh, remember riding the bus from Calgary to Toronto, which is. A oh. surprisingly long way. Oh, Ontario like was three days all on its own. But the biggest thing that I remember about that was there was this guy who was on there the whole time I was on there, and he had a screwdriver in his pocket. And what he would do is every time someone would get up and go to the bathroom, which you tried to do as little as possible, he would wait a beat and after the door was locked, and then he would walk down there, and he would try the door. Is it really locked? I, I don't know what he was doing. Was he protecting them to make sure the door was locked? Was he hoping to get in? Oh. No one knows, but um, that was yeah that that was pretty much my only time riding Greyhound. And to be honest with you, I did it because I thought it'd be kind of a fun adventure. Well, and now you learned. Yeah, sleeping, adventures have screwdriver toting monsters on the ground. Is quite painful after a while. Oh yeah, no. Yeah, no, it wasn't I, good. I'm fairly certain the Vietnamese used that as a torture tactic. It makes sense to me. Uh, yeah. Coincidentally, I, I was actually traveling on Greyhound a lot in 2008. I took a train from Seattle to Chicago and from Chicago to New Orleans. Right. And then I took the bus all the way back, or most of the way back. I remember reading about this in the news and thinking, I really wish I could fly home. <laughs> because I think later that later that August, there was a uh, a TB outbreak. Right. And they had to contact a bunch of passengers from another Greyhound bus. No. Yeah, yeah, because the, there had been this, you know, patient zero on one of these buses and oh all these poor bastards probably had TB. The great thing about Greyhound though is it's, it's like Keith Richards and roaches. It, it's it's always going to be there <laughs> because true. there are always going to be people so poor they cannot afford a car. Yeah. No, I, I remember I was on a bus going from Amarillo, Texas to Raton, New Mexico. That sounds awful. It was hell on earth. I yeah. mean, if you drive it, it's only a few hours. Right. But if you take the bus, it's 14 hours. Oh. Because the bus service in New Mexico sucks. And actually, interestingly enough, I saw I saw a piece in Rolling Stone the other day about how people from a San Francisco to New York flight right. were pulled off and, uh, sorry, at, once they got to JFK, they were forced to produce their papers to oh, wow. show that they were American citizens. Whoa. I know, right? But- I remember being on this Greyhound bus. This isn't the story I was going to tell, but I'm, it's it's illustrative. I was on this Greyhound bus outside of Las Cruces, New Mexico at about two in the morning. Right. When INS stopped the bus, got on board, turned on all the lights. We all had to produce our papers. Wow. So this isn't unheard of. No, it's I just, know. Well, but within the country, that's pretty 
Shocking. Well, this is New Mexico. Yeah. I was in, I was still in the country. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, no, I wasn't in Mexico. Right. Jesus, you couldn't pay me to drive a bus, <laughs> be on a bus in Mexico. Sometime I'll tell the story about being in Juarez shortly after the cartel war broke out. Oh, fun yeah. times. Short version, don't do it. No. Good. Thank you for that. No. Zero stars would not recommend. <laughs> anyway, so I'm on this bus in the New Mexican desert sitting next to this guy who... Actually, sorry, it was the same night as the INS thing because right. the INS, uh, there was another Canadian on board and they asked me if I was with him. And I said, no, I, I'm, I'm by myself. Yeah, just because he's Canadian doesn't mean we're friends. I know, right? <laughs> and no, I don't know your friend. <laughs> the guy next to me who speaks at uh, a volume roughly equivalent to that of a, of a Harrier jet taking off. Not good. No. He, he decides that I'm his new best friend because right. I'm from Canada. He says to me, so you're Canadian, eh? Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Canada. Oh, I, I was up there once. I was, uh, I, I, I touched the Stanley Cup once. <laughs> uh, that's, that's great, Rain Man. <laughs> Lovely. And then he tells me he just got out of jail in Juarez. Perfect. Right? Perfect. I don't know what you have to do to get thrown into jail in Juarez or what heinous stuff you have to do to survive and get out. Yeah. But right now he's sitting next to me on the bus in the New Mexican desert, roughly three in the morning. Being very loud. And he's your best friend. He's my friend now. Mm-hmm. And so this goes on. I'm making grudging conversation for about 20 minutes until the bus driver comes on over the intercom and says, hey, you two, you either keep it down or you getting off this bus. Oh, wow. And I thought, don't let me in with this no, guy. I, I no, got, no, no. this has nothing to do with no. me. But the guy kept talking. <gasps> oh, I was terrified. Driver pulled over the bus, flicked on the lights. Oh, Jesus. I'm going to get murdered in the desert. I'm going to get murdered in the desert. Because you figured he'd throw you both off. Yeah. Oh, that's what he said. He was going to throw us both off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got to tell you, I have bad history with the desert. (laughs) Uh, And this this was the beginning of that. Really? Oh, terrifying. So eventually this, the, 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 I assume serial killer looked at me with that, that expression as if to, the expression as if to say, uh, oh, this driver, what's his problem, eh? Right. And I thought, oh, this guy, (laughs) don't kill me. (laughs) Finally, we got to whatever the halfway station was and thank God. I got on a different bus, but I tell you, man, part of me wonders if I died, uh, I, you know, I had to get off that bus and my spirit, it's like the others. I just can't entertain <laughs> the true reality. But maybe you are still in the desert. And again, if I'd had any kind of backbone, I would have said, look, man, keep it down. Yeah, but yeah. as we've already discussed, heroes don't ride the bus. No, heroes do not ride the bus. All right. So we were going to talk about the uh, documentary Cannibal Possession, Heart of Ice, which is about the Vince Lee case as it relates to the Wendigo. Except that it's really not. It's excruciating. It was really, really bad. It it was it was right up there with having, having dinner with the in-laws as far as boring goes. <laughs> As far as movie experiences go, imagine you and your significant other have achieved the age where most of your, all your good friends are dead and you're leaving in a beige condo somewhere by the coast. The only people you socialize with is this one couple who you don't really like at all, but they're the only people left alive that you know. Yes. And so at once or twice a week, you go to their house, you play bridge, you have drinks and all the way home, you just talk about how much you hate them and how miserable an experience it was. That was the 40 minutes I spent watching this movie. Well, and I knew we were in trouble because of course, as we do, we talk, you know, while we're watching these things. And I said to you very specifically, please stop pausing it. You're making it longer. (laughs) It was just excruciating. And it's, uh, I don't usually, you know, I've watched some pretty awful things, bad things, terrible bad production and all that. And I usually will try and keep watching it because, you know, I started it. I just couldn't do it. We stopped it at the 25 minute mark to discuss something. Yeah. Put it back on. And when I stopped it, 
uh, as my last action as a sentient human being before my liquefied brain ran out my ears. Only nine minutes had passed. I know. And, and it was an hour and 15 minute documentary. Yeah. I'm Catholic and I have been to masses more exciting than that. <laughs> I went yeah. to a three hour Easter mass in Trail, BC. Oh, that's not right. That was more interesting than this movie. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I would rather be gut punched by Father Laurie, <laughs> the angry bald priest of my childhood. Than watch the rest of that Than watch the rest of that documentary. Well, thankfully we don't have to because we're grownups and we can make our own decisions and decided to turn it off. And as, as our grown-up listeners, do yourself a favor and skip uh, Cannibal Possession Heart of Ice. Yeah, not good. That's going to do it for us tonight, folks. As always, thanks for listening. If you have some feedback or a story you'd like us to talk about in the next episode, write to us at ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. And if you want to, you can also send us feedback on Facebook, and we're also on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my book's coming out soon, Victoria's Most Haunted, available where all wonderful books are sold. And Brennan's book is out there now. It's called Strange Little Place. It's tremendous. It's tremendous. All the best people are reading it. Top. Top people. Big thanks to Pizzanta Music for our theme song. You can find them online at soundcloud.com slash Music. And thanks to Will Arbus for letting us use his music for our bumper this week. Please rate and review us on iTunes. We're hoping to bump us up the chain there. Appreciate that very much. And of course, share us with your friends. We're going to go out on a different note tonight. Uh, ordinarily, we fade out to that great theme music. But instead, we're going to play a song more suited to the subject matter. The song is called Charlie Wenjack by the Canadian artist Willie Dunn. And it's about the boy of the same name who in 1966 froze to death while trying to escape from an Indian residential school near Kenora, Ontario and make his way back home to his family. It's a lovely haunting song and we play it here because the Wendigo is mentioned, but we have absolutely no copyright claim to this. So if someone listening to this does have copyright claim to Willie Dunn's version of Charlie Wenjack, let us know and we'll take it down. But know that we're not making any money from this. We just really want to spread uh, the word of a, a really beautiful song. So... Here is Charlie Wenjack by Willie Dunn, and we're going to be back to you in two weeks with another episode. So until then, take care and be good to one another. Walk on, little Charlie, walk on the green snow, heading down the railway line, try to make it. Made it 40 miles, 600 left to go. It's a long, old, lonesome journey, shuffling through the snow. He's a lonesome man, he's hungry. It's been a time since the last he's ate. And as the night grows colder, he wonders of his fate or his legs. A rock with pain as he staggers through the night As he sees through his troubled eyes His hands are returning white
in a mining camp, his mother in the ground, and he's looking for his dad, and he's looking for love. Just a lost little boy by the railroad track, heading homeward bound. Is that the great Wendigo? Come to look upon my face, and are the stars exploding down the misty island space? Who's that coming down the track, walking up to me? Her arms outstretched and waiting, waiting just for me. Walk on, little Charlie. Walk on through the snow, moving down the railway line, trying to make it home. And he's made it forty miles, six hundred left to go. It's a long, old, lonesome journey. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if If you don't win your first bet, bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.